Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my wisdom publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. Humans are a social species. We drive to attach for our safety, and it is our ability to bond in a way that provides our core needs that allows us to survive. We are not a species that very quickly can survive on our own. We desperately need affiliations to survive. It was the human species' ability to form our, those robust, strong uh, hunter-gatherer collectives where the members each had each other's backs, looked after each other, that allowed the human species for the first 190, 200,000 years before we moved on to the kind of advanced architecture, uh, agriculture that, that allowed for the contemporary city-states. But for the vast bulk of our species history, we bonded to survive. We bonded in ways that uh, we really felt other people saw us, cared about us. Uh, if we were in pain, they would in some way rush to our aid. Uh, they would share their resources. If we were under attack, they would have our back. If we were uh, sick, they might nurse us to help, health and so forth. It was that... Um, that it was that those conditions that, uh, through uh, essentially natural selection, our ancestors who were the most capable of bonding uh, were the ones that survived long enough to pass on their genes, and so over time our species became an a extremely social one. It's so important that there are various times in life where we are primed experience expectant, as it is called, get important vital messages about how to connect with others, what our expectations should be of relationships, how we should survive in relationships. These are called attachment patterns, and they start very, very young in life. As early as 20 months of age, a year and a half, uh, the first series of attachment patterns are embedded in circuits of the right hemisphere in the limbic structures. Uh, these patterns are, are very basic emotional beliefs of how safe we are in the world and how reliable other people are. And then around 40 months of age, there's a second set of attachment patterns where defense structures, how we defend ourselves when we don't get our needs met, and uh, fantasies and false self-structures, according to Winnicott, are embedded. So what this means is that well before we develop what's called narrative memory, the ability to actually remember an event and retell it or bring it up to memory on purpose, well before we have that capability, the most important events of our life have occurred. I'll put this another way. 
the most important events of my, events of my life and of your life, in many ways, happened during a time of our life we can no longer remember. There's important implications about this in terms of what we can do to address emotional wounds, patterns in attachment that cause us suffering, and so forth. I'll talk a little bit more about that. But let's talk about what we need first to wind up uh, feeling secure and having a very confident, uh, positive, internal working model set. Uh, we need four things. We need, one, the feeling of safety, the feeling that there's some caregiver there or figure there that can protect us that is uh, uh, willing to uh, shield us from threats. And this is the most basic fundamental core drive of the species. The core need is to feel connected in a way with others where we feel safe. Uh, along with that is the second need, which is to be seen and understood, and by which I mean to have our emotions, what we're feeling, seen by someone who understands what our emotions are, can in some way through mirroring help us integrate those emotions into our lives so we understand what anger is, what sadness, what fear is, what joy is, what disgust is, what all the basic emotions are, the caregiver helps the child understand. The caregiver literally goes, oh, you're, you're sad, you're happy, you feel lonely. And in so doing, the caregiver not only helps the child understand that these emotions are okay, the caregiver helps the child integrate those feelings into their life in a way that they pair the emotion with appropriate survival action. So if you feel lonely, the parent helps you understand that that's a time to reach out and connect with another to uh, reaffirm a bond. If you're feeling frightened, the parent instructs that's the time to protect yourself, to leave a situation and so forth. So we need to feel see, seen and understood. The third is we need to feel comforted, soothed when we're in distress. Someone there who can essentially, uh, when we're uh, triggered, activated by feelings of being attacked or judged or uh, uh, shamed or whatever, we have someone that will soothe us, who will just by being with us, sitting with us, a gentle touch perhaps, through what's known as limbic co-resonance, we become less distressed. Our heart rate returns to normal. Our, the parasympathetic nervous system switches on. The sympathetic switches off. We begin to have less cortisol in our systems and more serotonin. So that's an unconscious process that is we are hardwired to expect when we sit with someone who's safe and who cares about us. It's not done by language, it's done by proximity and compassion. And the fourth quality is someone who delights and appreciates us, someone who really, really sees all of our hard efforts, all the work we put in in life, 
and who acknowledges all that endeavor. So I'll summarize it. We need to feel safe. And that's, again, through someone maintaining attention and proximity. We need to feel seen and understood. Someone who helps us acknowledge what emotional state we're in, helps us understand that our emotions are normal and that and the, the appropriate responses. Someone who comforts us when we're uh, frightened uh, or in some way activated and someone who appreciates. You can just, uh, in four words, safe, seen, soothed, and appreciated. That's what we need. When we have that, we get what's called a secure base. What is a secure base? Think of a child in a playground, a child who's uh, being introduced to a whole world of other children. The child feels uh, overwhelmed at first by this complex array of, of kids playing with toys. If the child feels her mother or father is paying attention, will intervene if the child gets attacked by another child. If the child feels that it will be soothed and comforted if something bad happens, and if the child feels the parent will be delighted when it climbs a swing or uh, makes a new friend, then the child can go off with confidence into that world without constantly checking, is, is my parent paying attention? Uh, am I safe? The child feels the security that allows it to go off and to embrace life, to take the risks of bonding with others, to try out new um, uh, behaviors, singing, dancing. That's what the secure child does. Barbara Fredrickson, a wonderful psychologist, calls that broaden and build behaviors. And it's always those positive emotions and behaviors are activated when we feel safe. So uh, if we don't get those feelings, if we if the, the father or mother is only sometimes paying attention and sometimes they're distracted, lost in thought, so there's this unreliable quality, then the child will not venture off. The child will hover around the parent because the child doesn't know, oh, my, my, my dad has my back. So the child has to stay very tight to the parent, doesn't feel confident. And that child grows up to be anxious in relationships, choose partners that are emotionally unreliable, is preoccupied about her relationships, is uh, caught up, in, and will not address other issues in her life. She or he will become fixated on uh, monitoring how, what's going on with their significant other. They'll be preoccupied. Starts very young when the child literally cannot detach from the parent because they just don't know that how reliable the connection is. And of course there's the child who grows up with a parent who's emotionally completely disconnected, a parent who's ongoing in their depression, anxiety, uh, unresolved uh, anger and rage issues and so forth. Uh, that child will very often 
not understand what the big deal about any form of connection is, will not understand the value of attachment, and that child will soon start to become very self-reliant, minimize its needs, and will go off and play by itself. It will have no interest in other kids, no interest in its parents. It will find toys or just wander off alone. And the, the abused child will dissociate, essentially check out or hide. That's the child whose parent is not now, uh, instead of being safe and uh, soothing, the parent is the actual cause of the child's distress. But the biggest issue of not getting secure attachment in childhood is, if somebody could uh, buzz somebody in there, the big issue for me in my work with individuals is um, it creates a, what I call core shame. Core shame is a rather somewhat new term in uh, uh, psychology. Essentially, it's the belief uh, that there must be something wrong with me because my parents are not paying attention. They're not reliable. I'm, there must be something wrong with me. I must not deserve love and care in some way. Uh, I'm just not worthy of attention. And that creates this global sense of self that is damaged. And all, a whole host, of course, of cluster B disorders arise. The child who feels this lack of um, uh, any self-worth and feels ashamed of themselves will do anything to try to maintain positive attention. He or she will uh, dance through any hoops, will constantly try to become perfect. They have this belief that they're, if, I, if only I could be perfect and didn't make any mistakes or uh, changed myself completely, then I would get love. The individuals I work with who came from really abandoning early life experiences have an extreme fear of abandonment or disconnection, which is understandable because every time a relationship ends in their life, it validates that sense that there's something wrong with me. Why else did this relationship fail? And so they will cling onto relationships where none of their needs are being met, with people that are Essentially, they're feeding off of crumbs, but still they can't let go because if they do, then it validates this core shame, I'm unlovable. In a little while, I'll talk about why it's so difficult to treat this, but then some of the modality, a new modality that we're going to work with. For the Buddha, insecurity... Uh, the Buddha, if anything, was a little bit more pessimistic than attachment psychologists. Attachment psychologists in clinical studies maintain, and here's the big joke I always tell, maintain that one out of every two of us is secure, is confident in relationships, believes that we will get our needs met, balances work and life well, uh, is not too demanding of attention but shows up, is reliable in their care, 
knows how to state their needs and set boundaries. I never meet any of these people. <laughs> I never do. None of them come to me. They have absolutely no desire to, to uh, check in with me. They're out there in the world. Probably it's like that Woody Allen movie, uh, Stardust Memories, where he's in the, at the beginning he's in this train and he's, it's like a, it's like a Russian prison camp where we, people are eating, you know, cold potato soup and they're looking at him with, you know, hatred. And then he looks across the tracks and there's these people, beautiful people drinking champagne and smiling and he wants to change the tracks and the door closes on him and, you know, the, that train leaves the station. If you don't, you don't have to see the entire movie, but it's a very funny scene that opens it up. Anyway, sometimes I feel that way when it comes to secure people. I know they're out there statistically. I read it over and over again. Mary Main's research says there's a whole, that there's three billion of them. They're just on another continent. So uh, the Buddha tended to believe that lack of security was endemic. He, uh, he shared a view, I think a little bit more closer to my experience, that it was a, that you, that insecurity, lack of feeling a secure base in the world is a rather, uh, universal quality, uh, and that that lack of security is what is the underlying cause of craving, constantly trying to feel secure but we crave things that can't give us lasting security. We crave uh, sensual pleasures that don't last. Uh, getting likes on Facebook or social media, uh, Instagram. Uh, we crave uh, good feelings through binging on Netflix and shopping and uh, Tinder hookups and whatever. And there's nothing wrong with those things in themselves, but if we're using those things to give us a felt sense of a secure base where there'll be someone there to soothe us, Facebook is not going to soothe me. It's just not. Facebook is not a person that will sit with me and ratchet me down when I feel lonely or uh, rejected. Uh, the Buddha, let's, let's listen to him. Atta Sutta. Everyone everywhere is insecure in the stress. And so they crave safety which leads them in turn to conflict, contention, and they view others with aversion. The Buddha is saying that, uh, due to our insecurity and the fact that we are trying to find a secure base in the world through things and disposable experiences, we view other people as competition. We're no longer seeing that our relationships with other people are what's supposed to give us security. We now view other people as somehow in the way. They're not the source of, uh, the relationships are no longer what we seek. We seek things. In the Ratapala Sutta, where the, the entire Dharma is summarized, it's summarized as, uh, as following. Everything in the world is swept away. Nothing lasts. There's no shelter. No one is in charge. There's no protection. And nothing can be really owned. So the world is entirely unsatisfactory. The world, Buddha by the world does not mean people. He means things. He means the short-term pleasures we, we, we cling to. 
So how do we address this lack of a secure base, this lack of feeling that there's someone there or people there to uh, see us, to keep us safe, to uh, soothe us when we're emotionally uh, activated, and someone who cares about our achievements. Well, the first is that these, as I said at the beginning, these patterns and beliefs, these emotional core beliefs, these, this core shame is established well before narrative memory, and there is very little evidence that interpretation-based therapies work very well. In other words, sitting uh, with a therapist and saying, well, okay, yes, uh, my, my mother was anxious, my father and my mother got divorced, I was separated from him. I, all that is insightful, but it doesn't lead to a, a, a significant change in the underlying emotional beliefs because understanding is a left hemispheric conceptual language based uh, endeavor and it's like essentially you're trying to address core beliefs that are held in regions of the brain that do not understand language. What emotional beliefs that were set way before we developed language. So a lot of conceptual understanding, and I've certainly found this in my own work, where at the beginning I thought it was great to just give these really, you know, have these really in-depth connections with people where we would connect, you know, early abandonments with contemporary self-sabotaging behaviors. And the problem was that it, it, as true as the insights were, they weren't leading to significant change. Um, because the patterns are stored both in the right hemisphere and the orbital frontal, the anterior cingulate, and mostly hardwired the core shame into limbic structures, right amygdala and so forth. So the, the, another thing that can work but takes a really, really long time is, of course, the standard modality in attachment is that simply the emotional bond between the therapist and the client um, begins to create the corrective emotional experience. So you didn't get secure attention and kindness in childhood. You sit now with somebody, an AA sponsor, a therapist, uh, a mentor who cares about you. The problem is, uh, while it works, you're getting access to them maybe two hours a week if you're in therapy twice a week. And that's, uh, most people are only in therapy once a week. So it takes, years and years and years to make a dent in those underlying core beliefs that people will let me down, I'm not safe, nobody sees, nobody really cares about me, there's something wrong with me. The, the therapist is only so capable to address those core wounds because still so much of our life we're still walking around often getting re-wounded because we wind up in jobs where we recreate our family system, where we, we practice conflict avoidance, uh, we wind up with toxic workplaces, so we can very easily undo all the hard work of a therapist. Much more promising, uh, finding a relationship with somebody who's exceedingly secure, 
you finally hold off. You don't chase the unavailable or people who are shut down or uh, who are incapable of intimacy. You finally wind up in that relationship and the person is just angelic. It literally uh, drops everything, meets Gottman's minimal 80% attunement where they stop what they're reading whenever you you, you make a bid for your, their attention. They're like, how can I make you feel seen? But even then, let's face it, human beings are fallible. And look, I, I'm pretty secure in relationships, but I have really bad days. I have days where I'm just, I have so many people I work with, or I'm behind on a writing assignment or uh, whatever. And so I can't, in a relationship, I can't always give the quality of care, attention, kindness that, that helps. And so um, what about friends? Well, friends generally try another strategy when people feel core shame. There's something wrong with me. I'm unlovable. I don't deserve happiness. Uh, the friend will... Uh, say really th nice things to try to counterbalance the core shame. They'll say things like, oh, I think you're wonderful. I think you're pretty terrific. Uh, you know, you're being too hard on yourself. You know, you, you deserve so much better than that guy, etc. What this does, unfortunately, is it just triggers the a person's defensive structures because deep down inside they believe that there's something wrong with them and that belief is not an idea it is a core emotional belief and so when somebody says but you do you are a nice person you are lovable they just don't believe it and they really will start to think well you don't know me then you're just not seeing that ugly part of myself and then they will uh, begin to push you away because they will essentially you will be telling them something that threatens their entire worldview that there's something damaged there's something broken so yeah there's ways we can work with that uh, with children who, that come from disorganized attachment giving the child or the friend really specific compliments. If you give a compliment that's too grand, you're a really good person, they will immediately try to poke holes in it. But if you just literally focus on something that's actual that they've done so that they, it's not, you're not trying to fight the global lack of self-worth. You're just saying, hey, that's great that you, you know, you're depressed, but you managed to come out and meet me. Many people wouldn't be able to do that. That's a fact. And it's very difficult for them to argue with a uh, very specific compliment. And enough specific compliments begin to make a dent in core shame. But here's the tool we'll be working with in our meditation. Um, two uh, really important psychologists named uh, Dan Brown and Sam Elliott recently, two years ago, wrote a book where they published all the research 
uh, they've done in, a, in uh, addressing attachment wounds. It's called uh, attachment disturbances in adults. And if you have any, if you're curious, I can assure you the book is every bit as dry as that title. Um, there are pages in this book that go on for years. And, uh, but then I'm used to reading these types of books. I, I have a, a veritable library of like these books written by people that are extremely insightful, but literally couldn't craft an enticing sentence if their lives depended on it. But still, uh, there's some amazing stuff in this book. Absolutely, uh, there's a stunning uh, literature review of all the different attachment modalities that have cropped up in the last 10 years and for the first 300 pages. And, uh, but then you get, you start getting to the protocol that they've developed and they've been studying for the last 15 years. And it's a really exciting one. What they do is knowing that people need to feel safe, to feel seen and understood, to feel soothed and to feel appreciated. They've developed what they call this ideal parent protocol where you visualize in a meditation insight practice, you visualize a figure that can give you all of the uh, secure attachment needs we all need to feel confident and safe in the world. All the things that we've been seeking from others, some of which we've even given up on. We literally create the ideal experience. And this is important because if we go back to early childhood uh, life, the child that is secure doesn't actually need to have the mother or father with her. She just has that sense that there's someone there that cares about her, and that enough allows her to go out and play. So we literally actually don't literally need someone to be there giving us the secure. We just need to create the felt experience of being seen, cared about, uh, worthy of love and attention. So in this modality, um, they have a very specific protocol of in uh, with the therapist and the, and the client work together to create an image of of of, an, of a felt internal being or uh, individual or a sense of a presence of of someone who can give us those needs i will finally before we jump into the meditation i'll note that these qualities are eerily similar to what in Buddhism are known as the Brahma Viharas. The Brahma Viharas are the divine abodes or attributes or emotional states the Buddha talked about that are the most healing. And the Buddha says creating the felt sense of unconditional kindness, compassion and care, appreciation, and of finally this equanimity, this sense of a parent that's there but is not overreactive, that watches but doesn't needlessly intervene, but knows when to intervene on our behalf. 
So what I'm going to do in this meditation is I'm going to blend the ideal parent protocol where we'll create uh, the sense of a perfect uh, attachment figure uh, with some core Buddhist practices. There's another practice called Devanusati where we envision a purely compassionate being in our presence. And the studies show, they've been studying this new protocol for about 15 years, and they just started publishing the uh, results. And the results for PTSD were stunning in terms of how quickly there was a diminishment of dissociative uh, depersonalization and uh, other markers. So it's an extremely emotionally valuable tool. Thank you for listening. I hope there was something interesting in there. And now we're actually going to do the practice. So we want to start by finding a really comfortable seated posture and uh, just a couple of notes. One, don't try to look like a Buddhist meditating. Don't try to look like what you think is the correct posture. Just allow your body to tell you what feels comfortable. And then what we want to do just to have a nice balance of effort with ease and relaxation is we want to gently tilt the, t the head just slightly back like we're looking at a tall building as an effort to restrain the head from slouching in front of the chest. And that's a really, it's really beneficial to uh, to keep the head from slouching. And now we're going to spend the rest of the early part of the meditation just relaxing the body. It's the body that informs us that we're safe in an, an environment, not our thoughts. Our thoughts have absolutely no effect on the structures in the brain that make us anxious or fearful. It's the way we breathe and hold the body. So we'll start just by taking some nice breaths, a relaxed breath, leads to an easeful state of being. So try to breathe in to a count of like four, like you're inhaling the scent of a really wonderful aroma and then as you breathe out through the mouth very slowly and completely 
like you're breathing out a candle and then try to have a long relaxed pause between the out breath and the in not so long that you start to become anxious about when you're going to breathe again just see how much you can relax your body after you breathe out so that when you start breathing in there's been a a state of ease that's created to receive the breath so now in addition to a breath conducive to ease we're going to create a body that's conducive so as you breathe in lift your shoulders up like you're trying to touch your ears and just hold them up and as you breathe out through your mouth dropping your shoulders like you're just putting down two heavy bags you've been carrying around through an airport and you finally gotten to your hotel it's in a beautiful location you've put down your bags and just gently if you like pull your shoulders back to open up your chest that's always nice to create more room for the inhalation and then for a second long in-breath, pull in your abdomen like you're sucking in your belly, holding it in for an extra beat, and then as you breathe out, soft abdomen. No one's looking, just release any clenching tightness. And for our third in-breath, clenching the toes, squinching the buttocks, squinching, I mean, making fists, clenching the jaws, squishing the eyes, furrowing the brow, tightening the nose, pinch the little face, and then breathe out. Nice. And now you've fully settled into you fully landed at your destination you've got no more traveling nothing else you need to do you're on your vacation you have no desire to think about tomorrow or anything that happened earlier on this is what you've been seeking uh, time to just fully land in your life So when we reach that perfect spot on a beach or by a lake or in a hammock or wherever you finally land in life, there's this sense of just letting go throughout the body. On the beach blanket, you just release the body into the sand and just allow the sand to receive you. So just soften into what surrounds you.
taking a moment just to feel behind you knowing that it's safe, you can release into and then feeling with your mind in front of you and then softening into the space directly in front of you noting the solidity of the floor beneath you just releasing the buttocks, the legs, everything, just allowing the earth to catch you. So we're going to just for a little while try to cultivate a state of ease. This is done by creating a state of flow where we're paying attention, we're engaged, we're immersed in an experience. And when people are in flow, they're in the happiest times of their life. When you're in flow, you don't worry about what's going to happen to you in the future, what other people think about you, or you don't catastrophize, you just stay fully present and engaged. So one way you can do that is just trying to fill up your awareness with every sensation that's going on right now. Hearing the sound of the air conditioner, Feeling the breath in your body, breathing in the expansion, the uplift, breathing out the release, the softening. Breathing in, feeling the shift of energy in the body, breathing out the relaxation, the ease, the letting go, sound, sensation, lights behind closed eyelids, If you do find your mind wandering, no worries. Every time you wake up in a memory or a plan or a fear or a fantasy, feel good about it. It's a sort of a petty awakening, a small awakening. Just relax back into the presence and if you need you can count inhalations and exhalations, one on the in, two on the out, three on the inhalation, four on the exhalation. When you reach five, start counting back down, four on the out breath. No judgment, no criticism. This is your time to just reward yourself counteract any tendency of being critical or harsh. If nothing else, 
just creating in your life a safe space, utterly free of any judgment or criticism is worth the practice alone.
So at this point, I'd like you to release attention to the breath and the focus on sounds and other present time sensations. And I'd like you to now switch your practice to a creative visualization or imagined practice. See if you can bring to mind the image, if images are easy for you to work with, the image of someone that you associate with care, with kindness, attentiveness, availability. Now this image, this person can be real, someone that you've actually known. A figure in your family, a friend. Someone who's shown you kindness. A therapist, a mentor, a teacher, a guide. And if no one comes to mind, bring to, bring up an image of someone that you associate with these qualities. It could be any figure, someone who's alive, someone who is no longer present. But it's important to see if you can not only bring them into your mind, but really begin to create a felt sense of their presence. And that's done by either visualizing their face with some detail, seeing the softness in their eyes, the gaze, a friendly smile, something that denotes an emotional state of concern and kindness. If an image doesn't work, no worries. Just how does it feel when you are with anyone who can give you that, those qualities? How does it feel when someone tells you that they've seen something that you've done that required effort, that they noted an accomplishment? When someone stays with you when you are struggling, Think of someone who you can relax with and be entirely yourself without any guardedness. How does it feel when you first see that person? You first are in their presence. Can you feel that state of being cared about? creating the felt sense of <coughs> being
being seen being safe with this person being soothed by their presence and appreciated for ourselves exactly as we are we don't need to do anything we don't need to earn their attention they believe that we deserve it just for who we are feeling creating the sense of being loved this takes time and practice it may be very awkward at first but now I'd like you to finally as the second part of this practice bring to mind an image of yourself at a time when you felt really wounded, hurt, abandoned, rejected, somebody you depended on. Was no longer available. A time in your life where you were very emotionally isolated or without care, without someone who, taking care of you, without someone who could offer you kindness. Just allow whatever image of yourself from whatever period, you don't have to think it, just allow whatever comes to mind. And just see now if you can share with this wounded part of ourselves some of those same feelings we so desperately need now. Seeing this wounded part of ourselves looking into the eyes I see you I care about you I see you I appreciate you I see you I'll stay with you. I see you. Together we'll face whatever challenges are in our life together. I care about you. So in a moment I'm going to ring the bowl. If it's possible when you hear the sound to slowly open your eyes and try to bring 
some sense of that feeling that we're trying to cultivate with you into the rest of your evening. We do this practice once a day. It's pretty much what the studies were based on. There's so much potential for healing old wounds.